All right, hey everyone. Uh, I'm Simon. We've got Trace here, and we have Kevin Espiritu here uh, from Epic Gardening fame. Uh, this is the Doomer Optimism podcast. Uh, Kevin, do you want to give a quick intro about yourself? And sure. Epic yeah. Gardening? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. Um, I guess the quickest intro I could give would be I did not grow up gardening or homesteading or really interfacing with that aspect of life in, in any way. I, I grew up in Southern California in a, in a sort of standard suburban home and was into science and sort of growing crystals and collecting coins and stuff like that, but never really got into gardening or, or homesteading topics until my early 20s when I was coming out of college and had a background in like economics accounting, wasn't really using it, didn't know what to do and was playing video games like crazy. And so I got into gardening as a way to like get off the computer and back into the real world and uh, just got hooked on the process of growing plants. Uh, and then of course, in a twist of irony, like built a online sort of education uh, platform, I guess, about gardening. So jokes on me, I guess, but uh, yeah, that's, that's a bit of the background on Epic Gardening and myself. Nice. Was, was there like a, a catalyzing moment that of maybe experimenting or testing things that you feel like this is something that I, I love. Yeah. Well, it, it really was the first time, honestly, it, it was hitting up my brother. I mean, it's so long ago. The way I remember the story is I, I hit my brother up. He hit, he's younger than me. He was coming home from college and we both liked video games. You know, we both like to play them and it's easy way to sink time in the summer. And the problem is my summers were over. I was like out of college. So I was probably supposed to be doing something else. Um, and the way I remember it, my mom was like, Hey, you know, you should do something with Brian over the summer, like skateboard, go surf, like get a hobby. Uh, and so I suggested all those to him. And I, I remember tossing gardening in at the very end. And he is, I remember like perked up. He's like, Oh, like interesting. Like what about maybe I could grow some basil for some pesto or something like that. And so we just, we did like probably what every single beginner would do. And it would be to go to a nursery or maybe even like a Home Depot or Lowe's. I think we went to a nursery though. And I grabbed some cucumbers. He grabbed some basil. He had massive success with his basil in, in year one. He was smart and like just grew it in normal containers, like a normal beginner. Uh, and I tried to grow my cucumbers in like a hydroponic system I designed and that did not go so well. But I think the, the, the desire to do it that way and grow in hydroponics like sort of requires you to go a little deeper on how plants grow. And then that the science angle sort of hooked me. Uh, mm -hmm. And so I was like, oh, wow, like you can shape and control and express a plant in different ways and you'll get different results. And if you want this, you can do this. If you want this, you can do this. Uh, and, and that I think was the initial hook. And then from there, as the years have gone on, I've developed, I guess, different sort of interest points in, in the whole world of homesteading gardening. I, I think what, what I was, uh, what kind of stuck with me was you you talking about how it kind of it was an opportunity for you to get outside and like kind of reconnect to the real world. Um, I wonder if you might be able to just speak a little bit more on that, because I think like that does there, there's a nut there of like the doomer optimism crowd is just sort mm. of, you know, the cliche is like, go touch grass. Right. Yeah, right. And but our, we just sort of turn it a little bit on its head and just say, go plant grass, like go plant something, you know, like yeah. go be active in this it's participatory, like be active in it. And I wonder if yeah. you just a little bit more to that. Yeah. I mean, I'll confess, like I'm, I'm not as up 
on the the doomer optimism memes and culture, but I do see touch grass quite a bit. And I think it's funny. Um, but for me, what it was is, so I'd come out of college, right? I was playing online poker actually to pay for school. So another sort of video game-esque mechanic there. My brain was really primed for it. I think I've always been primed for like game mechanic type things, puzzles, et cetera. And I did not have anything to fall back on once I decided to stop playing poker. And that's where video games really came in. And I'm talking like eight, 10 hours a day, trying to grind my way up the ladders of like StarCraft or League of Legends or some of these like games that can be very, very addicting. And eventually... I was like, dude, what am I doing? Like, it, I should just be playing poker if I'm going to sit on the computer all day because at least I was making money doing that. This is just a, this is almost a pure waste uh, of time, at least at, at that level. You know, I'm the kind of guy, I guess, who, who can't just play a little bit of video games. Uh, and so the idea is I was like, look, I'm, I'm living my whole life in this garage, in this little townhouse that I was in after college, just sitting there playing like Minecraft and stuff. What am I doing? And I needed anything to just get me out of the garage. And I did not care what it was, um, which is why gardening happened to be the thing, because it could have been anything. And I wouldn't have picked gardening out of a bucket of 10 things because I'm a SoCal, you know, 22 year old. Like, why why would that be the thing you'd go to? Um, but then you're right. Like once I started growing, I was like, oh, wow. Like it just opened a whole new door for me. I was like, oh, my God, like. Everything I see, at the, it sounds so basic, obviously 10 years in, but I go, oh, everything I grow at the store was cultivated by a human being in a specific way. And there's probably interesting ways those were all grown. I wonder what those are. Like, how does the potato get there? How does the citrus get there? Uh, and and that just kind of took me uh, and, and it's been taking me for a ride, I don't know, for about 11 years now. Nice. What, at what point did you... Uh... Did you think I should share this with people? And like, how did you develop those goals of of teaching? I think you said on your channel, 10 million uh, people, which I'm sure you've done by now, how to grow food. Right. Yeah. So what had happened at the time is I had found something I enjoyed, right? That wasn't just sinking time on the computer. I did not, however, have a way to like support myself still. I, I was opting not to go down the accountancy pathway, which is what I graduated in. Cause I saw all my friends go into 80 hour weeks at, you know, Deloitte and Touche and these big companies sleeping under the desk. I'm like, I don't know, it just doesn't seem like it's for me, but I'll figure something else out. So I was designing websites uh, for clients. Like, you know, I built a website for my dentist. I built a website for a guy who sells Letterman jackets here in San Diego way back in the day. And I go, well, I need some sort of calling card. Like I needed proof that I can do this thing that I'm talking about. Cause I had never really designed websites before. I just like picked it up as a skill and so I was like, well, I'll build a, a gardening sort of journal. And it wasn't even called Epic Gardening at the time because I was only doing hydroponics. So it was at a different name. But I was like, well, you know, it's a way to chronicle what I'm doing. I like to I like to write and like share what I'm doing. I always have. And then it also doubles as like a little calling card, like a digital business card for this, this web design thing that I was doing at the time. I did not know, I guess, that the web design thing was was really not the main thing. And Many years later, Epic would would really be where I'd focus all the time. But I would say right away I started sharing, but no one was no one was listening. Do you, what would you picture as? Sorry, go ahead, Trace. Yeah, what what changed? What, what was changed? there a moment you noticed that things started to to kind of shift? I mean, obviously you changed the name at one at some point, but like sure. but yeah. before that point where you're like, oh wait a second, this is something real. You know, it started small because I. 
I was really into the hydroponic thing. Like it was fascinating. Hydroponic tomatoes, how do you grow them? You know, you're, you're controlling your nutrients, your parts per million, your, your pH, et cetera. You're, you're learning how light actually impacts plants because it's not outside, it's inside. So you, you have to buy lights and study how that works. And so I started a little subreddit way back in the day called R Hydro, which is still active. And I just sort of promoted that. And I was like, hey, if you're into hydroponic veggie growing, like this is the place. And I would share my articles in that little subreddit early on. Um, and and there was like, I remember very fondly, like there were like three, four screen names that I can recall of of guys who were all into it, not growing weed or cannabis or anything, just growing like broccoli or you know something like that. And we're all talking about it. And it, so it started really small, but I was like, hey, at least there's like seven other guys into this thing. Uh, and then from there, you know, the blog gets a little bit more traffic. You start the YouTube channel and and the snowball kind of starts to roll at that point in time. Nice. Um, so if you had, if you were able to reach that goal of like 10 million people, I, which again, I'm sure it's, it's probably much more than that at this point, given your mm -hmm. reach uh, and how long you've been at this, what would you picture as the ideal for those people? Do you, do you have like some sort of, ideal scenario um for food, like food production for people I've or tried. is it just passion you know, thing or i think it's tough because i've tried to i've always tried to never prescribe what to do mm -hmm. um, and and i've tried to realize you know my own journey it was it, it took 20 something years to even have an inkling of an interest in it and my particular catalyst how could I engineer that? Right. Like someone I would have, mm -hmm. in my case, have to get to a certain point where I was like, Oh my God, I got to do something. And so, you know, I, I talked to a guy recently, pretty famous celebrity was like living a, very much a Hollywood lifestyle. And it took him until about 43. He had some significant life events happen to him. And he ended up like moving out to Austin and living in a, like a VW bus behind someone's house and like planting a little patch of dirt for a year. And now he's dedicating his life to this path. And so all that to say, like my goal, I guess, is to create as many ways in as possible and let the viewer or the consumer sort of choose their own adventure on which one's the most interesting to them. So like, you know, if, if mental health is a thing that you struggle with and you want to improve, I've found that gardening does do that. And so mm -hmm. I try to create, you know, a, a few pieces that that speak to that. And if, if someone's out there watching that, then maybe that's their hook. But someone else very much would be like, I don't want microplastics in any of my food or something like that. Right. And so then maybe that's the hook for them. And so I think the ultimate expression is, is I sort of view my role as like getting someone on the path. And there, there are a lot of people who can take you much further um, once you're pretty deep. Nice. Um, regarding your your more, uh, I guess, somewhat recent uh, move into Epic Homesteading as well. What did that happen with the? I think you moved pretty recently in the mm -hmm. last couple of years. Did you you got some more space? Um, what what made you want to to upgrade and and sort of expand um, beyond just gardening? I think for me it was the space I was in before, which is where most of sort of Epic Gardening was built was a small front yard garden in a very urban area of downtown San Diego. So, so really only so much you can do there. I had like one fruit tree, a bunch of grow bags and a bunch of beds like kind of crammed together. 
And so it was in the pandemic. It was like May, end of May in 2020, I purchased the place I'm in now, which is, I mean, for, for many listening, probably not on much bigger space. It's about 13,000 square foot lot, but for San Diego in a suburban area, like that's actually pretty big. Um, so the idea was, well, I just want to grow more in different types of things and more in different types of ways. I, I literally have no space to do it where I'm at, but the bonus was the place I moved into was just like completely barren. It was a flipped home. They had scraped the sod off and thrown on like fortunately natural wood chips, which is kind of a nice little, little bonus, but that was it. There wasn't anything else. And so I was like, okay, cool. Well, this is a true, this is as true of a blank slate as I can get in my area to see what it would be like to try to be self-sufficient in like a quote, normal American home, you know? Uh, mm. And so that was kind of why I created that second channel. Uh, Cause I figured just a bit of YouTube sort of inner inside baseball here is like, as a channel grows, you sort of have to keep giving it what it, it wants. Uh, and if I did a hard okay. pivot and said like, this is how I'm baking my own sourdough bread or something like that, like, they didn't come for that. And so a separate sort of side channel was the way to express like the broader level of interest. And what's the interest been like? I mean, has it been really responsive been what you were expecting or has it been greater than you were expecting? It's been, it's been interesting because on like a raw subscriber sort of count, it's a much smaller channel at around 300,000 subscribers, but I sort of view it as like where the true fans come to play because we're a little more loose there. We're a little more fun, a little more silly. And we kind of just put up what makes us laugh and makes us, you know, something we can learn. So like we'll, we'll bake our own bread or we'll try to mill our own grain or that sort of stuff. And we're not anywhere near the level of someone who's out in maybe a rural acreage, like really trying to do this at, at scale for their family, but we're not trying to be. So uh, we have a nice right. passionate sort of sub fan base, I would say over there. That's been really fun to, to connect with. Yeah, um, given your time there and like what you've been able to experiment with and pull off in that small space, um, do you think that's like a a sort of scalable thing for other people to to do to grow a significant amount of food? I think so. I, I think the questions I have because I've kind of gone to the nth degree here with with solar and water capture and gray water systems mm -hmm. and all these different things that really I would not expect even a passionate person to go to that particular level, part of it is I can do it because it's the business that we run, right? So I can, mm -hmm. I can expense something like that and someone else could not. And that's a reality of what we do that I try to be sort of conscious of. But I do think, you know, you, you could have the amount of space I have to grow and depending on what you like to eat and what you like to grow and how much time you like to spend in, in the garden, I think almost any American home could produce a meaningful amount of, of produce for themselves and just kind of, a, it's kind of a choose your own adventure. Like, do you want nutrient dense right. stuff, herbs, greens, et cetera, or do you want like calorically dense stuff or are you more of an orchard person? But all of them I think are doable. Have you seen that network effects in moving to your new neighborhood? Like are people excited that you're growing things? Is I it think inspiring people? this, yeah, I love your guys' perspective. Like this doing it in the way I'm doing it, where I'm doing it, it's not as infectious as I would have liked it to be in the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. um, I think because it's just a normal neighborhood. And so a lot of people's yeah. mentality is not where mine is, which is totally fine. They love it, but they're not doing it, right? 
Yeah. Uh, and, and maybe it's just one of those things where the catalyst has yet to come, but it's not like I've, you know, decided to move out to a community where people are already of this mindset. Um, sure. Which, you know, it just is what it is, but I, I am sometimes a little surprised that I don't see like a couple more fruit trees around, you know? Sure. I, I totally get that too, where we, we are in like a little exurb outside of a, a larger city, but uh, I like to grow a lot of trees and propagate shrubs myself. And like, it's yeah. actually hard for me to give them away to people even. So like going to my neighbors, like you know, with a box of, you know, strawberry plants and a plum tree, I'm like, Hey, you guys want to plant this? You, you've got kids, like they might enjoy it. And they're like, Oh, we don't yeah. really have room. Like, come on, yeah. you got room for a strawberry? I know. Yeah, I know. But, yeah, I think there, there's, there's such a hurdle of knowledge to to jump there where they're like, we simply don't even know how to grow that, man. You know, like, yeah. and I think that's part right. of it. Um, that, but, but what's funny to me, I wonder if you guys have noticed this is when someone does make the flip, they're all of a sudden like absolutely obsessed, but it's just that it's just that they have to get there first. Yeah. Yes. That's what that's what I really liked about you saying, you know, I think you, you might have said this before we hit record about, you know, kind of one of the purposes of, of the work you do is to make this legible for the average person. Right. As you're trying mm -hmm. to allow them to go from zero to one in many respects. I mean, something that all three of us have seen is that, like, getting to one, the battle is almost won in a way. Right. Like if you can get to one, you're probably going to keep going to some to mm -hmm. some further degree. It's the stopping before you get to one that really is worth sure. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, for me, like my first harvest, harvest is a joke. I, I wish I would have had it queued up. I could I just could have showed you guys the picture. I literally spent all season growing four carrots and they <laughs> like dirt. It was they were garbage carrots. Yeah. It was so like happens. I put something in the ground. And it actually grew and I could actually eat it. Like it was one serving mm -hmm. of one dinner for, you know? Yeah, I know. So like it was it, instant, you know, it was like, yeah, it was that's the thing, right? And so, you know, I, I think that the work you're doing, I, I, I was going to mention that like in, in kind of a funny way, like if to get more people in your neighborhood, more interested, almost they really just have to go subscribe to your channels right? Mm -hmm. It's all there. Like you have all these different doors they can walk through. So in a way, like your new place has become like the calling card for what you do. I mean, in, in a weird yeah. way, the yeah. website was a calling card for your website business. You know, I've sort, I've sort of thought about it. Like the content is a story I'm telling effectively about what I'm doing, but I'm not, if you watch it, you'll notice I'm never really saying like, this is what you should be doing. I'm sort of mm -hmm. kind of just saying, here's how I capture this, how much rainwater, this is how I get this, how many eggs, you know, and I let someone else go, I would like to get that many eggs. And then they, cause, cause from a persuasion perspective, you always persuade yourself, right? Like the choice right. always comes from within. And so I figure no one likes to be told what to do either. Uh, they might like to be told how to do something, but they need to decide that they're the one who wants to do that thing. And so, yeah, maybe my own neighborhood has not spawned many direct gardeners but obviously thousands tens of thousands maybe millions who knows of neighborhoods around the country have started it's just i can't see them if i look outside yeah. well that's kind of what we've been talking about really is like what happens when the work you're doing really does start to compound and those like little spores right that are all over the place place mm -hmm. actually start to merge and mm -hmm. create like you know more regional ecosystems right right like in a suburban area where i live like the average lot size is like 
half an acre to three quarters of an acre, right? It's yeah. a decent amount. That's of good. Space. You string like three or four neighbors together in, in even just in one strip, you know, where it's like 30% of the houses are doing something like this, especially in the front yard. I mean, it starts to change the character of the neighborhood. Oh, um, absolutely. It doesn't take a lot. You don't need a hundred percent, uh, you know, participation. You just need 20, 30%. And suddenly things start changing a little bit or looking. I think, no, I think, I think you're totally right. We, so we have a podcast in our sort of network. We it's called the beat and, and we'll have people on across like all different disciplines and we had uh, a guy from the National Wildlife Federation on, and obviously his perspective is more like biodiversity, native species, et cetera. But the point he was making was like, if you look at each suburban home as a patch of farmable, gardenable land, you you say, well, why did we all choose to grow either nothing or, or grass species, usually non-native, right? And so you go, well, yeah, you wouldn't. You wouldn't do that if you were coming at it from like a gardener's perspective, or maybe an ecosystem perspective to your point, Trace. So like I, the way I sort of view it is I go, okay, well, if the biggest cultivated crop in America, I believe is grass, um, well, what a difference you could make by convincing 10% of all homes to just not be that you'd make a massive difference in the overall sort of flora of the country. Right. Um, right. And then they, but, but you don't have to do it. Nothing, nothing from the top down actually has to happen. It's just all bottom up individuals go like, actually, yeah, this grass kind of sucks. Like at least I'll do a wildflower mix or whatever the case might be. Yeah, right. I, absolutely right. I, there was a, a debate going around uh, Twitter for a while. Somebody um, who was rather controversial, but uh, he, he suggested that 10% of like American homes uh, growing their own food uh, to some extent would be enough to create a sort of food revolution mm. uh, in the country, which I found was interesting. Like the whole debate around it was fascinating. Um, so we all started digging into the numbers around this. And it turns out that more than 10% of people in America were already had chickens, for instance, oh, wow. which is a crazy number. So when you compound That's that sort of stuff with people like, yeah, yeah. Um, there's some, there's some big surprises that when you actually dig into those numbers. So I, I wonder what the, I, I know we can't really prescribe anything, but like, I sometimes wonder what, uh, what is that catalyst and, and are we potentially on the way there with small movements like these, like headed back to the victory garden age or the, the Dhaka garden age in. Yeah. I, I wonder it feels like to get to a victory garden era sort of level of adoption, you kind of need a national sort of rally and cry or like a national mm -hmm. enemy or something like that right i mean at least that's my current logic is like we're all yeah. inspired to do it because we need to feed ourselves because need the army needs the rest of the food um and so i'm like okay well i don't know how to i don't know how to create that reason um but mm -hmm. i do i do think it's interesting to see all these little pockets like i know at least here in california uh for example like getting raw milk is now quite a bit easier than it used to be um I think the company's just called like Raw Farm and they've done, as far as I can tell, like maybe 20, 25 million in sales this past year. And I'm like, that's significant, you know? And when I consume mm -hmm. that, I have less problems with my gut than if I do not consume mm -hmm. that. And so I'm like, I'm not a dietary expert or anything like that, but I'm sort of just going by the same logic as I would in the garden of, I'd prefer to just have something, if I'm going to consume it, I just prefer to have it closer to the source. Um, yeah. And yeah, I mean, I think it, it, 
I, you're right. Like, I don't know when the tipping point would be, but if enough people in let's say San Diego County have, have their own chickens, the local egg market at grocers does actually go down. It does actually see, you actually would see an impact at that level, uh, which then would impact like the distribution chain of mass sort of egg producers to the San Diego area, which would Mm-hmm. change Right. the supply side. But it, it, it would take quite a bit of time to trickle up through the system, I think. Sure. I think there's a lot of fascinating side effects that could potentially come with that too. Because you say you have that percentage of people that, that deal with chickens. Uh, there's a high likelihood that they are also using that chicken manure. for fertilizer or they're passing that on to somebody else who's doing so, or they're using the eggs to barter. So there's a, there's like a whole other economic structure that I find really fascinating that could potentially underlie something like this, even with a, Yeah. whatever that point is, but if it's 10%, that's, that's pretty interesting. And it seems a lot more maybe realistic or achievable. Um, Yeah. I I think we can network yeah, cuz I mean, that. like in my particular case, I certainly unless something's not in season or I just don't have any left, like I have no need to go to the grocery store for greens, for most vegetables. I mean, citrus I'll I'll never really need to go to the grocery store for ever again. Um And then when my chickens are laying, they've been quiet for a little bit, but when they're laying, I'll be getting five to eight eggs a day, which is more than my girlfriend and I consume. And so you, you sort of create like a shadow economy, I guess you could say, um, Mm -hmm. that's just not consumerist. Uh, Yeah. It's production yeah. Mm based, really. It's -hmm. like Mm -hmm. it sort of it, it it organically makes a market, right? Like, I mean, from like the most basic, like uh, you know, uh, su supply and demand, right? Like you have additional supply of something, right? It spills out to the areas who where there's some demand and they meet, right? Yeah. I mean, it it is really interesting, you know, like that how much how much power to warp the economic system right um just people switching to production is basically going from consu consumption It would be huge. to production Yeah. even Yeah. a little thing like you're you guys are talking about eggs or just like i'm going to grow my own kale and like my own greens basically right i'm just going to focus on that um that had, you know that individual has a very small effect but at a larger numbers it starts to have a real warping effect to the economy I think so. Yeah. And I think like take, take the egg example again, when we're flush in, in spring, summer, a little bit of fall, like, like I said, I mean, five to eight a day for a two person household is like 35 minimum a week. It's too many. We don't eat that many. So a dozen goes to my mom who now does not buy it from the store. Right. Um, and so, yeah, I really wonder linearly if we continue on this path, At what point will the articles maybe start coming out saying people aren't buying eggs at the store anymore? And here's why, you know, like at some point that will happen, but it's, I don't think, um, because there's no like major national level catalyst to make everyone do it at once. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like a coordination problem where a, there'll be a tipping point where all of a sudden people are like, oh shoot. Kind of like how like streaming took over cable. Like people didn't care about it until they did. And then Netflix completely destroyed everyone, you know, um, I think it'll hopefully play something like that. I mean, we'll see. Either way, I get my eggs, so it doesn't matter. Yeah. <laughs> True, Yeah. it's a win. Um, Kevin, on the note of like you producing things, do you ever do you ever sell your produce in farmers markets or anything like that or Back, back in the CSA? day, yeah, before Epic was more of an education-focused company, education products, 
I was growing microgreens. So I sold, I did sell microgreens to restaurants for a while, maybe like half a year or so. And I uh, ended up shutting it down because back then it was before I went full time, even on Epic Gardening. So I had other things going on, travel, et cetera. Um, but I have some experience. I've never done the farmer's market. And to be honest, I kind of just like giving it to like family and friends um, versus selling it. We do also have a donation program. There's a like a food pantry around the corner uh, that will we'll sort of offload a bunch of stuff to if we have too much of any one thing. Because a lot of the times like people don't know it, but like if we're growing cantaloupe or something, how to grow cantaloupe video, we might get a way more cantaloupe than we would have grown if it's just two people living in a house. Right. And so mm. have a plan for that, that produce and hopefully not waste it. Nice. Um, so what, a, I, I think you sell seeds as well, right? Yeah. That was kind of the big thing we did, uh, in 2022 is we, we purchased uh, botanical interests seed company, okay, which is a pretty, pretty big one around the country or like 4,500 stores or so. Wow. Uh, so that was, yeah, that was our big, magnum opus move of the last couple of years yeah how's it going is it going well yeah yeah it is i mean it's it's ironically it's like the first seed i ever grew way back in the day those those cucumbers i grew were, were from a botanical packet i just didn't really know it back mm -hmm. then um and then came cool. to know the brand because they're just in every nursery uh, and so right. when it came up for sale we were like oh my god like let's do this and they chose us which is great and yeah, it's, it's really cool because there are few things, we are a business, like that's the thing I think a lot of folks in our particular space, specifically on the gardening side, um, a lot of folks like have a hard time with with the idea of a business in general, it seems like. Mm -hmm. like look, you know, I, I've worked and see a lot of the not sort of nonprofit approaches and it, they don't, the impact, I just don't see it as much as I see yeah. like stuff that we do and obviously everyone has their own taste. Uh, and so- Seeds is is something that not only do people want to buy every year, typically, unless you're really deep into the homesteading sort of saving seed world, which as it takes a while to get to that point, um, have to buy every mm -hmm. year. Um, and so, yeah, it's been really fun, like plugging that into the ecosystem of, of stuff we create and doing videos on the seeds we're excited about and all that. It's been it's been really cool. Is there anything that's uh, surprised you about the seed business? I think when you look at the retail packet trade, which is what you would consider botanical interests or, or a Johnny's seed, maybe a little bit less so because they'll, they'll do some farming and they do a lot of farming stuff too. But like a, a Baker Creek, for example, also is a packet seed company. Many, many, many of these companies, some of these varieties are only available from like one or two providers. Um, Cause you're not, you, you don't have a thousand acres where you're growing every single thing that you sell. Some things mm -hmm. you grow and produce and clean, germ test, et cetera. Some things are such a basic staple that there are contract growers that exist. That that's what they do for a business is they grow corn seed or something. Mm -hmm. So you'll go to them and and get some and and then you do your own process to maybe create your own mix or or to germ test it or whatever sort of special sauce you're adding. But it's crazy when you look at the biggest seed companies, like there's not that many, like there's really not that many companies that produce the seed that the world uses to grow its own its own food. Um, especially when you get to like a home gardener, there's just really just not that many, which right. is it's kind of wild. Uh, it's interesting. Um, on the note of, of you potentially getting hate around or, or getting harassed about the business, like business being in business from the growing side of things. Um, that's definitely something we've touched on. Like, uh, 
as far as it relates to regeneration and like the permaculture space, even uh, people are pretty anti capitalism or tend to be a lot of mm -hmm. the time. But uh, it's been an interesting theme that's come up that Trace and I have discussed at length. Um, and, and like you say, like the, the reach of nonprofits, I was just having a discussion today about that. Like there's there's so much overhead and the concern of these nonprofits so often becomes the fact that they're just trying to keep their head above water and survive as an organization that by the time they're actually ready to do anything um, good and like make a potentially sustainable or regenerative difference in the world, there's not much left for that. Um, but anyways, Trace and I have been talking quite a bit about the potential for capital and us like just Sometimes we just have to embrace that, even if we disagree that yeah. that might be the way, but you really can make a difference, you know, using capital in different ways. And I, I think so. I mean, I guess I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to suggest that I like do not like a nonprofit approach or anything like that. For sure. I just yeah. think that, I don't know, like when you start gardening, you start and you, and you get a little bit deeper into it, you, you understand the ecosystem and how it impacts itself effectively. It's like a recursive sort of thing. So like when I, for example, when I go out into the garden and, and I had the bare lot, tons and tons of earwigs, right? Like tons of earwigs because they're decomposers and that's literally all that there was there. You start building the garden. I build some sort of pollinators, bird attractor sort of gardens all of a sudden there's less earwigs. They're getting munched because there's an abundance of them. There's like seven birds. And so they're like, okay, cool. I'm going to come in and cut that population down. You start layering these systems and you start to see, I mean, we have birds of prey now. We have larger mammals coming in. And this is a suburban backyard. It's not even right. like an area where they kind of should be. And so where I'm going with that is like, that is a natural forcing process of true sort of selection in a sense. Mm -hmm. And the best way I guess I could view the capitalistic system is it's the closest human approximation we can get to that. And unfortunately, it means that you do have areas where people are just doing stuff purely for profit and it's the ethics are, are quite bad. You also have like very wasteful scenarios because things would be, let's say, cheaper to throw away than to repurpose. Mm -hmm. You think about like product returns, for example, would be one area where like people some companies will be like, yeah, it's just cheaper to literally throw this away. Amazon's a good example. Like most of your Amazon returns are put in these big boxes that are then sold on eBay for like $500 for like $4,000 worth of retail good. Because it's literally cheaper for Amazon to do that and rebox it at their scale, right? right? But um, th there is a forcing function on true demand for a thing in the same way that like an ecosystem would respond with like different populations kind of balancing themselves right. out over time, you know? Yeah. So that's the best way, I guess I think about mm -hmm. it. And it doesn't mean that I like love the results of a lot of these capitalistic efforts sometimes. Mm, um, the power of biodiversity, I guess too, right? Yeah. Yeah. That would we be need market, all these systems. market mm -hmm. participants. You could say okay. is an analogy there. I, I think, I mean, in the end, the small businesses in particular are, are really just very efficient users of capital right like because a nonprofit, you know sometimes has to establish like an a, a hierarchy in administration just to keep the money flowing in because mm -hmm. their product is not what they do right exactly so right. separate bureaucracies where with a business when they're run properly i'm not arguing that large businesses aren't huge stupid bureaucracies too but like yeah. small business um, where everyone who works there knows each other, right, is capable of 
um, incredible feats of cooperation, organization, and use of capital. It can be incredibly efficient. And when you do something like what the work you're doing, where there's really very little that you could say is bad about your business model. So you're making money that is fundamentally good and doing a good regenerative mm -hmm. on the planet. Yeah. Then you're taking that capital and reinvesting in more things that'll expand your capacity to do more of this good work in, in the, in the, in the country and in the world. And, you know, that is, I mean, you can't think of a more efficient use of capital. It's it, the whole process yeah. is good for people and planet. I Every hope so. Right. Like I hope so. Cause I think we, we actually had a discussion because we've thought, do we start a nonprofit arm? Do we work with nonprofits? How can we sort of deploy capital or, or resources to those? And, you know, there's one nonprofit in particular, I think does a really good job knowing what they're selling. Uh, to your point, Trace, is like, what are you buying when you donate money to a nonprofit? The truth, if you're getting really sort of, I wouldn't say cynical, but if you're getting as sort of direct as you can, is you're buying an emotion or you're buying the the feeling either publicly or privately that you've done a good thing and you're good, right? Uh, and that's fine because why, why not sell that if the net result is that that money you donated actually goes towards a, a useful cause for the planet? That's, that's great. Uh, and so like a company like Charity Water, I think might be the best example of, of how to approach it. Because what they'll do is they'll use their uh, mega donors and they'll do big galas and they'll do fundraisers in a traditional nonprofit sense with their mega donors. And that funds the entire administrative overhead. All of the smaller people like you or myself, we want to throw a hundred bucks at them. 100% of that goes directly to the, the work, which would be installing wells, typically in Africa. Right. And what they'll do is they'll say, if you give us this many dollars, you'll get your name inscribed on the well you actually funded. And it'll be tagged on a map. Like So they've, they've <laughs> realized that you want to know that you bought that well or some fraction of it, and you want to feel good about that. Mm -hmm. um, and so to me, if nonprofits understood they're selling they're not, they're selling um, the emotion or the status, I guess, of the individual that's doing the donating. I think they'd be in a better spot today. Well, that's when the, that's when I think that model is the most uh, the most is the best, most efficient way to use it is when there's a decoupling of how you get your money with the work you do. Right. Like it's very, it's very it can be very hard to find a way to productize, uh, you know, starvation's camps like you right. know or, or places where people are starving right that can be very difficult um with something like what you do um you know it's it's there's you're selling a product that also is doing the work basically you know and so it doesn't make much sense to create this extra level of hierarchy and it's sure it cost um but a lot of the not a lot of nonprofits are are doing the work they're doing and they're structured that way for a reason i mean they're they're mm -hmm. doing great work um, and a lot of them are like actually really good at getting grant money and, and right. all that kind of stuff. So yeah. it's just a different path, I guess we've chosen. Yeah. Um, and I always think too, about the intangible value that is created from, from work. Right. So like we've got, I, I save emails that people send or comments that people send, and there's some pretty gnarly ones, you know, like what is the value of a human life? Because someone wrote an email, multiple people have, saying like they were suicidal and they found gardening through our channel. Could have been anyone's, happened to be ours. And they that changed their whole life. 
maybe that's all I need to do. You know, mm-hmm. like I, I feel like I could rest easy knowing that that that's what happened. And but that doesn't show up on a PL or really in a nonprofit thing. So it's mm-hmm. it's really hard to like quantify the value you you create, especially when you're in this internet game. Like at scale, there's probably 10 times the amount of people that won't write the letter that still had a similar experience, right? Who knows? Uh, so I don't know. I try to keep that in mind. So hard pivoting to a, 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 a like a powder puff question here, but mm-hmm. what's your favorite, uh, like what's your favorite seed right now? Like what are you really like jamming on or are you, are you pumped about? I think I'm, I'm starting to get, we're in brassica season right now, at least in San Diego. You kind of have to grow them through a true winter here. They won't really survive otherwise. Um, so I'm kind of getting a little tired of them because we've had them for a couple of months now. So I'm looking to peppers. Um, and I've got a bunch that I overwintered that are in the greenhouse. So I've got, I've decided my new strategy is things that I always want, like a jalapeno, a shishito, um, the, basically the smaller, more popular peppers, I will overwinter. Um, which basically just means I'll cut down two thirds of it, remove all the leaves, put it in a pot and then just wait until the season. And then I'll experiment and start seed on kind of the things I'm like, not sure I'll, I'll want, or I might not like. Uh, and so, yeah, it's try, trying a bunch of different peppers this year. And that probably starts in, I don't know, a couple weeks or, or so here. Mm. Yeah, it's crazy. I always feel like in December, uh, you know, spring is so far away. And then it's like, as soon as the clock hits to January, it's like, oh, yeah. it's only eight weeks away. What am I doing? Oh my gosh. Isn't that crazy? Time. Yeah. Well, you know, what's crazy. And it, we, we noticed this because as soon as Jan one takes over on the seed business, the sales just explode. Mm-hmm. It's, I think it's just the mental shift of the new year's coming new year, new season. People are all of a sudden ready to, ready to buy some seeds and they're getting excited. And I guess in some climates, like so I know people who start their tomatoes basically in like two weeks and they baby them for two months and they put them in the ground, mm-hmm. you know? So yeah. Surprise in Canadians. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. We've got two months here, man, before we can even start thinking about it. Yeah. But yeah. Um, how big is the greenhouse? It's eight by 10, eight cool. by 10. Yeah. So it's, you know, you don't need one, I guess, in San Diego, but. I wanted one. So I got, I got one and I'm growing like coffee and ginger and stuff oh, like that. Man. Yeah. That's sweet. Yeah. Super cool. Is it like a high tunnel or do you have, no, like a, it's a um, glass greenhouse? Yeah. It's a glass, like lean to style. So it kind of goes nice. like this. Um, so high, high walls. So I can grow like a big plant in there if I want. Sweet. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Um, mm. what's your favorite perennial? Lately, I would say, well, not even lately. I guess I would just say artichokes have done so well in my area that I just love them. I I don't know. Like they're they're gorgeous. If you if you have too many, you can just let them flower, and it's a, it's an amazing flower. Um, and I've never had to really water them because they're connected to my laundry gray water system. So nice. once a week, they're getting watered. They're they're all good. Mm. That's awesome. Do you do you mess with uh, uh plant breeding much? No, I'm actually a little salty about that because I I really want to, but it's just a thing that I have yet to go down. You know, I've done grafting, so I've grafted tomatoes and stuff like that um, to varying degrees of success, but I I have yet to breed. I've met a bunch of breeders, though. Like I met the Mm -hmm. guy who made um, the Clancy potato, which is the the one you can grow from a true seed. Okay. uh, Which is, it was like a 20 year journey for him to try to get that. Okay. Crazy. Uh, so when I, I learned about breeding, I was like, oh my God, like these people who, especially if you're breeding trees and perennials, like 
mm-hmm. it's a life's effort to, to get right. a couple cultivars out, you know? Uh, That's cool. Um, so. Trace and I, do you, do you know Joseph Lofthouse? No, no, I don't. Okay. So Trace and I interviewed him a while ago, but uh super fascinating guy. He, he's, uh, he just released a book a while ago, but he does this thing called land race breeding. Oh, yeah. Where he just collects mass amounts of genetics, plants them together, and the first year is just what survives, survives. Yeah. And then, the net, then select, and eventually he's going for taste, but he's, his collections are gorgeous. So he is growing like yeah. pumpkins that all have the same flavor and color inside, but there's there's infinite combinations of color and shape. But they all have yeah. the same taste and color inside. It's so it's so, cool. it's so cool. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. I, I know a guy, Sunflower Steve is his name, and he has produced sunflowers that no one, no, no, like traditional plant geneticist thought you could do. Basically, by doing that, um, so cool. Basically, so he he has like, man, I forgot exactly what happened, but it's basically a variegated sunflowers, perfectly split in half. One side I think is is white, and the other side is a variegated white, yellow, red. And wow. apparently he's like, yeah, this, this other guy was like, you can't do that. That's not possible. How'd you do that? It was like trying to get seeds, you know? Um, so I, I don't know. I think it's, I'd love to get into it at some point. Hmm. Well, with, with, uh, multiple channels and things that you're doing, I'm sure there's always something new coming down the, the horizon. Is there something that you, you, kind of before we leave off there's something you'd want to kind of talk about or get people pumped up that's right around the corner man i think what i'm realizing is like i said i i'm sort of the zero to one guy right get you excited and there's certain areas where i actually i i would say i'm pretty knowledgeable i'd put myself up there with other other growers there's some areas i'm never going to be that way like i don't know tinctures and salves made from medicinal herbs, you know? And so we're bringing on a lot of people this year that do obsess about just that, right? So we have like new creators coming on who can take you deeper down a particular pathway. Um, So I'm, I'm excited about that because I've been making videos for like six plus years now. So it, it, it relieves a little bit of the pressure off of me, which is great. um, And hopefully creates some like really cool stuff that uh, I couldn't create myself. Does that give you more time or does it just give you a, a different set of tasks you've got to do every day? Yeah, just different time, I think, because, you know, the, the, the best people out of particular craft aren't probably really that strong on YouTube because they have not been doing it. And so I sort of become more of like a mentor coach in that realm. Like, hey, here's how to make a good video. Here's how to title it. Da, 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 da. Mm-hmm. So that's probably where the time goes, honestly. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Well, Kevin, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Talking guys. to you, that was fun. Likewise, yeah, no, thank you, thank you so much for having me on.